message and for their time together. You got two? Good. There's a lot to choose from in that bag. Oh, so leftover from Easter. That's quite a while ago. Daniel, I think your Bible's still up here, buddy. All right, well, as the children prepare to leave, then we're going to turn, we're going to open our Bibles, if you brought it with you this morning, to 1 John. It is the epistle, 1 John, the letter, towards the back of the Bible, 1 John, there's 2 John and 3 John, right in front of Jude and right in front of Revelation, so you can go all the way back to Revelation and start moving forward. You're going to come eventually to the epistles named 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're going to be in 1st John chapter 2. Again, and not the gospel of John, the same author, but we're into his letters into 1st John chapter 2. And we'll read together in a little while the first six verses of the second chapter of 1st John. But as you turn in there and find it, i got a question to start with this morning. Would you all think it is strange if I stood before you like I am now and referred to you as little children? Would that seem a little bit strange to you? But wouldn't John Elpers, maybe the oldest person in here, said no? He's still a child. But it might seem strange for most of us, except for John, for me to refer to you as little children, because most of us, have graduated high school, and I know there's some teenagers in here who have not yet graduated, and some younger children. But most of us don't think of ourselves as little children. We think of ourselves as adults because we basically are adults. But yet we are referred to as little children often by our Lord. In fact, in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, it refers to that. Look with me behind me. You don't have to open your Bibles to John 13. But look what the Lord calls us in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. In verse 33, we leap down to it. He says, little children. I mean, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will see me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The new commandment I give to you, that you are loved one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So notice in verse 33, he's speaking to the audience. And what occurs before all this in John chapter 13 is the washing of the feet for the disciples. And it occurs then later that they get into more discussion and he refers to them as little children. So with that, then, if we listen to our Lord, and what he refers to then as those with him, the adults most likely, not just literally children as was gathered here, Regini, to hear the message, we are, in a sense, little children to our Lord. Now, while we ponder that for just a moment, we're going to turn today, as you already have, into 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to find another reference of someone, now this is John's words, not our Lord's words, but he's calling the people he's speaking to, 
little children. We'll find that today as the beginning of the reading, and we will also then begin, of course, to explain and apply. So we're in 1 John chapter 2. Stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we simply stand to honor the reading of the word. Again, 1 John, the letter, 1 John, in the second chapter, we look into the first six verses. And it starts off by having those three words, my little children. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading today of your word, and we ask now for a blessing to be upon it but lord we also pray today to you at this time at this moment for you to govern all that is about to be said here this morning i pray lord that these words and what shall happen here today is not things that i shall express and that people will receive not through me but lord through you we pray lord you'll speak directly then to our hearts let us see how this text written many years ago still applies to us in our lives today and let us be thankful as we will learn here today lord that we have an advocate your son so blessed are we thank you lord jesus for all that you do for us and the great blessings you give to us is in your name we pray amen you may be seated All right, well, it should be noted first for proper understanding, as I had mentioned just a little bit, that this is no longer, as you get into the epistle, through the letters in the New Testament, it past the Gospels, this is not actually here the words of our Lord Jesus. This is John writing the words that he wants his hearers to hear, his audience. So John here then is using, we recognize, some of the same words to describe to the people, to introduce to them what he wants them to hear and learn, and use the same of the same words as my little children. But he's not speaking to the disciples. We're going to identify who he is speaking to in just a moment, but quickly recognize this is not the, the words of Jesus. This is John echoing some of the words that Jesus used to describe his brethren. But he is not speaking to his brethren. He is not speaking to the disciples. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this partly because John is writing this letter in about A.D. 85 to 90. And John, of the original 12, John is the only one who has survived this long. Now, the other disciples that were with him, again, the original 12, we know what happened to Judas. That was long ago. But his brethren, the other disciples, have had a cruel, agonizing death being placed upon them for keeping their faith in the Lord Jesus. 
John has had his own type of persecution, but he has not been yet banished to Patmos. So now he is writing to what is second and third generation believers at Jerusalem. And he calls them then, not speaking to disciples, speaking to the second and third generation believers, my little children. So John then is writing to a group of essentially new believers, or what would be new believers, and refers to them as little children. So the question remains, are they literally little children like was up here earlier? Probably not. They're probably closer to our age in some way, in some form, but they are most likely adults. They're not literally little children. But he encompasses and uses the words to begin to speak to his congregation, to the second and third generation believers. And here again is what he tells them as we go back to the text and look again where we started in the second chapter or verse 1. He says again, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now observe rather quickly here with the reference again to little children, which is essentially the church. The John is emphasizing to his congregation not to sin. He's telling them not to sin. But he's quick to add that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, as we said all that and begin to spell it out, we need to pick a call, call a quick timeout. A quick timeout because I don't want anyone to think here that what John is saying is anyone a license to sin. I mean, emphasis again on, he says, I am writing these things to you, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In fact, to even substantiate clearly the meaning I borrow the words of Eugene Peterson in the paraphrase, The Message, who words it like this. He says, I write this to you, dear children, to guide you out of sin. So John is then observing, if you will, that every one of us has sinned. His congregation, the people gathered in front of him, all of us, including me, we all have sinned. Which, by the way, is in complete agreement with the Apostle Paul had stated in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all, not some, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul and John then are agreeing with one another. I mean, they concur. But notice how if you go back and read all of John's letter here, we're examining the second chapter, a portion of it, but if you went back later and read all of it, notice how John maybe goes a little further. In, in chapter 1, he says, if we say, he's speaking again to his little children, speaking all to all of us really then, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In chapter 1, verse 10, he goes further and says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, we make God, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So notice then 
that Paul and John are in agreement. They're saying essentially the same thing. John is speaking to his congregation, and essentially he's saying every one of us is a sinner. We've all done something to offend our Lord and God. So make absolutely no mistake. He is not giving anyone, by the wording we have here in the beginning, he is not giving any allowance in the partaking or the permission to sin and rebel against God. Which is perhaps a little bit of why he goes into verse 4 through 6 and adds then, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, not keeping his commandments obviously is sin, is a liar and truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, our Lord, walked. Again, I'm stressing, I'm, I'm taking the time out, I'm pausing here and emphasizing and stressing the fact that John is not giving anyone a license to sin in the beginning of what we examine in the second chapter of his letter. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card that he is issuing to anyone when they engage or we engage in any type of sinful and rebellious activity, whatever it may be and to whatever extent it may be. Because, you know, we seem to classify and categorize sin. We say to ourselves, oh, you know, that little white lie isn't that bad. Maybe it's not that bad. But in God's estimation, it's still a sin. A sin no different than cheating on your taxes, adultery, or murder. We may classify them, but to God, it's still an offense. And it's still all the same. Any violation of command is completely missing the mark, also known as a sin. So then as John is spelling that out, and then we expand a little bit upon that, placing the emphasis on the fact that we do sin, he then comes by after that, and he's simply telling the congregation, again, his little children, the people in front of him, that our sinful, rebellious, deceitful lives that we live in the fact that we are sinners, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. And who is the advocate? None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, sure, there is two verses that John starts out talking to his church to remind them how blessed we are in the fact that we engage in sin and we have an advocate to help us plead our case to the Father. Now, an advocate, when I was in Texas many years ago, I had an opportunity to start working for CASA. CASA is not the Spanish word for a house. It is, but it's not. CASA is really a court-appointed special advocate. And a court-appointed special advocate really is just that, which means basically that you are, as an adult, taking a opportunity to stand in front of the court and give an account for a child who is abused and neglected because often that child's voice cannot be heard. So a casa is essentially representing that child 
as an advocate in court to try to give them some much better living conditions or to remove the abuse that they have inflicted upon them. I mean, some horrible stories you learn as a CASA. I don't even want to begin to spell any of them out, but to let you know that a CASA is an advocate for the child because a child's voice needs to be heard and removed from that environment where they're receiving that affliction. So that really is an advocate then. And, and as we think about an advocate, that is one sense of an advocate, but we really need to better define an advocate. So as I was thinking about that this week, knowing that we have an advocate who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for when we sin, he is there for us to plead to the Father, I thought it might be better to find some synonyms to go along with the word advocate so we'd have a little bit of better understanding of what it is an advocate does or represents or is. So here's some synonyms. Notice them with me. An advocate can also be described as a champion or a supporter, a backer, a promoter, a spokesperson, as would have been with CASA, a campaigner, defender, fighter, and crusader. Those are some synonyms that we can use for the word cost, for the word advocate. So go back to verse 1, where it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have the advocate. Now take the word advocate out and put one of the synonyms in. See, we now have someone who is a supporter. We have someone who is a defender. We have someone who is a fighter. We have someone who is a crusader for us with the Father. And who is it? It's Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean, isn't it such a blessing to know do we have an advocate, a defender, a defider, a crusader? In the time, no, we shouldn't sin. John's emphasizing that. But the time that we do, when the time that we fall, we have that advocate. And it's not just any advocate. Ours is none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. None other than Jesus Christ. The righteous. Now just kind of ponder and reflect upon that for just a moment. I mean, intentionally pause here for us to reflect upon the fact that we have such a person to go to the Father for us. And we offend him in life with many of our actions and words. But yet he's still there, supporter, fighter, defender, crusader. I mean, it begs the question, have you ever truly stopped and fully considered that Jesus, he's got your back? For when you fall, he's got your back. I mean, again, he has at least your back for those who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. As maybe identified and explained when Nicodemus was going about in the dark trying to find out some things from Jesus in John chapter 3, he Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Nicodemus seems to be curious, you must be born again. So for every true, confessing, born-again believer, we have a wonderful advocate, defender, crusader. We have a wonderful, faithful, loving supporter. Now again, to pause here for reflection because I want us to understand the, 
that we have what, such a blessing that we don't even sometimes think about. We, we know we have a blessing and that we have the Lord Jesus that was available to us, but, but now it goes further. John explains we have this person who's advocating for us, who is pleading for us. In, in the New Living Translation, I like the, this translation because it words it just slightly different. He, it says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so you may not sin. Okay, he doesn't want us to sin, but we do. Then but. But if anyone does sin, again, we have an advocate, but here's the words the New Living Translation adds. Who pleads our case before the Father. Identifies him again as Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Again, the reason I like this translation as we go back to verse 1 once more, is that it points us to an absolute truth. Our advocate, none other than one who's truly righteous, God's only Son, Jesus Christ, he pleads our case before the Father. He pleads our case. I mean, do you see, do you see how blessed we really are? Do you see how blessed we are because we have this advocate available to us in our lives? And I'm saying, as I write this and I read this and I prepare for this, I'm thinking, okay, by now I have probably repeated myself about three, if not four times. You're saying, Pastor, get on with it. You have now said the same thing in some form or fashion repetitively now three or four times. You're saying we have an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. And we're blessed to have such an advocate. Yes, I am repeating myself. You know, when the Bible intentionally repeats itself, it's because it wants to place emphasis upon something. So I'm taking the opportunity to do what the Word does to repeat myself over and over and over again because I want us to see this is important, that we have an advocate who knows your name, who knows everything about you, more than your best friend, your spouse, whoever knows about you. They know everything possibly about you. And they're still your advocate. They still plead the case for you. And, and notice again, it, it is not your best friend pleading your case. It's not just some average joke. It is Jesus who comes along beside us all of us, sinners, to plead our case. Yeah, I'm stressing it. I'm emphasizing it. Because I want us to see we have Jesus to plead the Father for us in our sin. And we're sinning against him. I mean, so how, how easy it would have been for, for Jesus to simply delegate this responsibility to someone else. I mean, think about Maybe the angels. Maybe Michael, the archangel. He says, Michael, I need you to go take care of some business for me down there. I need someone who becomes an advocate for these rebellious, deceitful sinners. Michael, you just handle it. But he doesn't do that. Or maybe maybe Jesus is sitting up there and, and he finds the old brash Peter. You know, Peter, the one who's always getting some kind of trouble anyway. And you'll Peter the one, you know, that disowned our Lord three times. And he comes up to Peter and he says, Peter, I have a very important task for you. 
I need you to become an advocate for those sinners, for those people who despise my name, who constantly curse me, use my name in some sort of fashion besides to glorify. I need you to become an advocate for them, and I need you to really represent them people to the Lord because, you know, they, they, they really act like they like me. They act like they want to be with me, but they really don't. So, Peter, I need you. And Peter would say, well, why me, Lord? And I can imagine Jesus saying, because, well, Peter, you're a sinner. You know, Peter, you did disown me three times. And yeah, I know afterwards we had that moment where I asked you three different times, do you love me? And I said, will you feed my sheep? I know we had that moment, Peter, but I still need you to do something to make yourself right. I need you to become an advocate for these people who call themselves believers. I need you to do it, Peter. The fact is, there is no such conversation where Jesus is trying to delegate such a responsibility. He is our advocate. And, and I mean, it's like we spit on him, and he still wants to become our advocate, our, our pleading our case to the Father. It, it's such a blessing to know that we have such a Savior. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Many years ago, I was introduced to a video that somewhat shows this and demonstrates this. I'm going to preface the video before Chase cues it up because I want you to realize this video actually can be used for multi-purposes. It's a lighthouse, everything skit, and it can be used in a lot of different references for a, a message, but I'm using it today for I want you to see that there's this woman who's come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And as life happens, you know, Things just evolve, and all of a sudden, she's not like walking with the Lord. She's walking away, and these things begin to happen. But as our advocate, he never truly leaves her, and he comes in and supports her and defends her and rescues her. Let the video speak to you now. You are my hope. 
tell me how could it be any better than this? Yeah. Come the storms when you give me back. You hold me in your hands. You won't let me fall. You still my heart when you take my Maybe the video does a better job than I can explain it. Don't we do things to offend Jesus? He never leaves us, never forsakes us, accepts us for all of our faults.
every flaw, every sin, totally accepts us and then comes in and pleads our case for the Father. We have such a wonderful blessing. I mean, it isn't just anyone who is the advocate. It is not your best friend actually in life. Yes, it is your best friend. Jesus truly is our best friend because he accepts us as we are. So it's our it's our real best friend, not your work companion, not your spouse, not who you think is your best friend, who pleads our case before the Father. It's like he becomes a lawyer, an attorney, a lawyer, and pleads our case before the Father. You know, it seems there's many television shows that capture the essence of the courtroom of lawyers. I mean, over the years, there's been many different television series and shows that traumatize the courtroom. I mean, how many remember Perry Mason? Any Perry Mason people here? I know a few of them are older. I don't really remember Perry Mason that much. I, I remember Raymond Burr played the part. But, but you know, by the way, they're redoing Perry Mason. They have a 2020 version of, of Perry Mason. I haven't seen it. I guess it's on HBO, but I know it's available. But they've had over the years Perry Mason and Matlock, Andy Griffith. I mean, I love Matlock. Watching it over the years, that was a good one. They also had L.A. Law and Law and Order and Jag. And I mean, you could go on and name numerous television shows and series in which there is this person who is the lawyer defending the person in the courtroom. But here's the thing about it, right? Of all the television courtrooms, but in all reality, in a real courtroom, there is none, none, there is none ever that we have pleading the case like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here, listen, there never will be. I mean, Matlock may have been good, and Raymond Burr's Perry Mason may have been good, but they're not Jesus. They're not pleading our case before the Father. We are so wonderfully blessed to have such an advocate. William Barclay is a well-renowned author, minister, scholar, and he looks upon these verses we're looking at today, and he says this. We have one, one, to plead our case. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why Jesus? Because he's altogether righteous and paid my penalty on the cross when he died for my sins as my substitute. Jesus is my advocate. No other advocate do I possess. No pope, bishop, priest, or the Virgin Mary is my advocate. No pastor or deacon or Bible study leader is my advocate. I have but one advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. The reason he alone is my advocate is because he alone paid the price for my sins. Barclay puts it in a great perspective for us to understand the significance of what we're talking about here this morning in reference to what John is sharing with his congregation that we're sharing together this morning. That we have such a blessing. And the blessing is a fact that we know that Jesus is our blessing, but now we learn even further that he will support us, he will defend us, he will fight for us. 
as we stand before the Father and plead our case. But returning to the text once more before we conclude, we notice that John offers just a little bit more. I mean, we don't really need any more, but he gives it a little bit more. Verses 1 and 2 maybe are the emphasis this morning, but now go with me to verse 2, where it says that he is still referring to Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a big word that's thrown in there that you find that starts with a P, propitiation. It's a very uncommon word that we don't use or hear every day. And for that matter, it actually even uncommon that you will find it in the Bible. It's actually there's only four times in its present form. But it is conveying the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In fact, some translations just simply say, don't say the word propitiation, and you simply say atoning sacrifice or atones for our sin. But if you look further in the verse, you're going to find that Jesus Christ, again, the righteous one, atones not just for my sin or your sin or your sin or the Bailey sin. He atones for all the sins for the whole world, which might make you think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yeah, it seems that in John, which that was John 3.16, now John, his epistle, his letter in chapter 2, verse 2, in John 3.16, they seem to complement each other. And in point is to reality of the sacrifice that was made for every man, every woman, and for every child in this world. I mean, truly, Jesus came, died, buried, and rose again for everyone. Not an exclusive group. I mean, we are all wonderful people. I love us all. Every one of you. But I recognize that Jesus loves everyone. I mean, it's not just Baptist. In Crossroads Baptist Church, he came to die for. He came to die for all mankind. He atones the sins for all of us, the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 2 emphasizes the same point in verses 3 through 5. Verse 4 maybe particularly, where it says all people, not a few, not a select group, not just some, all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of truth. He, he desires for all people to be saved. I mean, so note that the verses that we dissect today and that we allude to, of course, does not mean that everyone will accept Christ, that everyone will be saved. I mean, this, this is not teaching in any way universalism, but is rather pointing us to an all-important fact that Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins, not just our sins, but for all the sins, all the sins of all of humanity. Now, having said that, I recognize, sadly, not all will come to receive him, which is truly sad. Not all persons will have a chance, or they have a chance, but not all persons will come to receive him as Lord and Savior. But what we're spelling out here today, to borrow a courtroom wording, is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That we 
have an advocate who took our sin upon himself, who pleads our case for the Father. And what I'm simply spelling out, maybe reminding all of us today, maybe like John is reminding his believers, or maybe they're hearing it for the first time, is that we should be very thankful, very blessed that we have Jesus pleading our case and making an atonement for our sin. I suggest to you, and I emphasize to you, it does not get any better than that. That's as good as it gets. Now, as we pray, and we often pray together, I don't know how many times you may have heard me pray, and I often pray that we recognize towards the end of the prayer that we're thankful for the best blessing we ever receive. I mention that a lot. The best blessing we ever receive is Jesus Christ. And I'm praying today that if somehow, some way, you've never received Christ, then you will step forward today and receive that great blessing because he's here ready to defend you, to be your advocate. He died for you. He died for all of mankind. He loves you. He loves you despite the fact that we don't always show that love for him. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today and the simple truth that it conveys to us. Perhaps a few verses, Lord, were emphasized here today and given to us, Lord, that we need to really understand of how truly blessed we are. Let us all recognize now, Lord, as we already mentioned here today, that every one of us offends you. We sin against you, Lord. But how thankful and how blessed we truly are that you accept us. So I pray right now, Lord, that all of us will have a moment here, reflection, where we will make any confession. We have not maybe had one confession of some particular sin. I pray, Lord, we'll do that here today. And then we can recognize how truly blessed and thankful we should be. Lord, I pray for everyone here today that you will forgive us for we offend you and where we fail you. But we thank you, Lord, for being our supporter, our defender, our fighter, our crusader, our advocate, and pleading our case for the Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You truly are the best blessing we shall ever receive. This is your name we pray. Amen.